Hey, it's Lou Carlozo in Chicago, the host of Bankadelic, the sister podcast to Dave and Darm Demystify. Today on their show, Lita Glyptis. She is the chief client officer at 10X Future Technologies. She has a PhD, but Lita also proudly wears other titles, among them geek, immigrant, optimist, and a fintech nerd who cares deeply about people and doing things the right way for the right reasons. She gives a terrific interview here, funny, frank, and full of great information. Anyone who cares about the future of banking will get a lot out of it. And so, Dave and Darm, take it away. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify Show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Believe us, there's nothing official about us. Yeah, I was going to say, we are, we're literally the Tweedledum and Tweedledee. <laughs> oh, my God. We, we should so long ago have been chucked out, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, genuinely, as I say, it's a real honour to be chatting to you, and I think the world is going to change. And what would be a real shame is if the opportunity is not taken to kind of change that for the better. I think that's a very good point. I do look back. I'm old enough to have been here for all of this, right? And if we say that the fintech wave started, what, 2005? Yeah. There was a period of not feeling it was relevant, particularly to those of us who didn't sit in retail banking. At the time, I was sort of deep end, as we used to call it. I worked for a custody bank, right? And when the first fintech murmurings and it was a different language different ways of working different ways of deploying technology all of it was a bit different it was very interesting for us because it felt really far away from us it didn't feel like it was relevant to our world and i remember meeting zopa back in those days you know and their attitude was we don't need you guys like we're doing our thing and the whole point of doing our thing is reimagining the world in a way that doesn't need you boring traditional players. And then from that phase, we went into the fear and loathing, the disintermediation phase. And then from that, we went to the period that lasted for such a long time of endless conferences, endless POCs, endless ecosystem conversations. And those who can't see me, I just did air quotes. <laughs> I feel that the BS legacy is very much the side effect of that. And I want to say that I'm coming from a place of great empathy for the people who have spent a long time of their careers in that space, because a lot of them are finding now that the skill sets they developed in navigating that fintech ecosystem space don't translate to skill sets that either a digitizing bank or a growing fintech actually needs. So we've destroyed the career prospects of some extremely intelligent people by creating an industry, the chattering classes of fintech, who have created a lot of space for people who talk about things they've never done. 
And it doesn't help because fast forward from 2005, a lot of people now make a living out of talking about things they've never done. Why is there so much chatter around (laughs) banking as a service, around digital capabilities, everything that comes under a rubric and it used to be, you know, blockchain, AI, APIs. Now it's a little more nuanced, but it's still a rubric that you would see at a conference program. And some people are making a living out of talking about it. A small percentage of those people are also doing it. The rest speaking with varying degrees of thoughtfulness and knowledge. So to go full circle to your question, there is a lot of noise because we've created endless amounts of space. In many ways, it's the story of the internet from the start. I've observed these sort of waves of interest which kind of come and it's driven by VCs getting excited and people seeing an opportunity. I mean, I remember this thing called push technology, like all the way back when. I'm struggling to remember some of the players that were in there, but it just sort of seems that every now and then people have their moment in the sunshine and it sort of feels a bit like fintech as its moment in the sunshine is kind of starting to happen. But you know, what's kind of incredible, I guess, is in the background, people are looking at these things and going, do you know what? There's a real application around this. And through the BS comes people who are able to see the wood for the trees and see the long opportunity. And, you know, I guess this is just part of the process. Well, I would question whether it has to be, but I would agree that it has been. I think COVID is definitely part of an accelerant in moving us away from talking about the ecosystem to actually looking at real stuff. I've done my fair share of both public speaking and attending conferences, but I never mistook that for the real work. So one of the things that we're definitely seeing is that we're moving away from the people who talk about things and run POCs to actually meaningful implementations, either direct to consumer or inside financial institutions, meaningful, deep implementations that show an understanding that the future will be different, that your infrastructure needs to be different, that your ways of working need to be different. And I guess that's where we're leading to, right? Was it necessary to go through all the chattering I would say yes and no. It was necessary to go through the learning. There is no way of short-circuiting that. There is no way of going from traditional mainframes and green blinking cursors on screens to fully distributed event-driven architectures without going through a period of accelerated and hard-earned learning. I actually think that part of how we navigated that as an industry was about creating a little bit of comfort and bringing in experts that created digestible nugget-sized information snacks is part of how we brought everyone on that journey because you can't just have your tech team knowing how to build whatever it is you need building. You need your decision makers to understand the art of the possible. So there was a journey and that learning was needed. Did we create too much space for opinion without substance? Yes. (laughs) Was it inevitable? Maybe, because we needed the space to create those credentials. But I think the point you're making, David, is valid. We need to move on. We need to move away from that to doing the stuff, because now we know that we can and we know that we should. Absolutely. It's like, draw a line in the sand and let's move forward. I know pertaining to the chat with you, you've just moved to 10x. Yes. One of the things that I'd like to ask you is, you know, what is core banking? And I guess what's the history of core banking? 
I came from pretty traditional banking, right? I did ops IT and then increasingly client-facing tech innovation roles for the last 15, 17 years. So I'm older than fintech in this industry by a long way. And as we were trying to fix problems for clients before fintech was a thing, and then increasingly as we're trying to bring new technologies across every bank I've been in, you would eventually get deep enough into your stack to come up against the core And that was always a dreaded thing because the core was where your ambition and your aspiration got its cold shower of a reality check (laughs) and found the limitations of what you couldn't do. And that's extremely important, right? Because that was the demon I was exercising when I moved into this space and the demon that a lot of us are exercising. I mean, 10X is founded by Anthony Jenkins. You look at Anthony's history and you look at where he's been, does he really need to start the startup after such an illustrious career? And the answer is yes, because he knows what he wants to fix. And that fire in the belly is what's driving us and others like us in this space. So if you think about that transitional period from when we first built those systems, the first sort of technology implementations in banks, and then the increasing aspirations for speed, most bankers never questioned what's happening in the basement. And only those of us who are trying to fix problems or bring new things in would get to the point where we couldn't do anything more because of the core, that mysterious thing. And you would go naively, well, why don't we change it? And you would hear these stories about the CTOs whose career ended because they did a core replacement that always lasts five years longer and costs 150 million more than you anticipate. And that's the end of it, right? That's the mythology of the basement in a bank. And I remember being in a room with someone who works in a major bank, and I won't name him, and I was describing to him why I had switched into this space and why it was important to apply brand new technology and architecture to this problem. And I was trying to explain what we were solving for, and he was not giving me any time. He was leaning back in his chair, flicking his pen, going, you're wasting my time, when's my next meeting coming in? I was this close to going, well, sod you. If you're not interested, I'm going. But I had a moment's inspiration and I said, do you know how your current system works? And the look he gave me was, why should I know that? Like, I don't know how the elevator works, but it works. (laughs) And it's there. It's how we did business for a very long time, right? So I got up, got a pen and did what every techie and geek in the world does when we see a whiteboard. Let me draw some boxes for you. So I explained to him not what we were solving for, but what he was going home to. And it was a revelation because he didn't know, because he hadn't needed to know, not because he's stupid or uninformed. And the fear of what he couldn't do because of what I just had drawn was palpable. So I tell this story to highlight that the question of what is this thing isn't asked enough. So if we think about the core banking system, it's in many ways, it's the least glamorous part of a bank, right? It's the back end. It's where the processes of daily banking live. It's where your transactions and your posts and your updates happen, your account, your accounting on some level. Like it's where your records live and where the ledgers are, and where the things that come in and out stay in the old world in purgatory for quite a long time, it's where the stuff that makes you a bank gets tallied up. 
older kind of like, or should I say incumbents, core vendors would argue that it's not only the product side of it, but it's also the customer record as well, yes. which has actually caused a load of problems, right? <laughs> exactly. And the governance around it. Dharmesh, you're absolutely right. The point that Dharmesh made is what makes this so interesting because client interfaces live there. Your balance sheet source of truth lives there. And a lot of your regulatory reporting also lives there. But if you think about the world 15, 20 years ago, you would take all the transactions, and this is high volume, low value if you're looking at a retail bank, but it's extremely high value and occasionally high volume if you're looking at any other type of corporate activity, corporate lending. Even investment banks eventually boil down to a core banking system, right? Because you're going to have to net out the transactions made. And in the old world, in the olden days, you would reconcile end of day. And for certain types of transactions that included collateral posting or any FX component, you would not reconcile the same day. You had that time. So the system was siloed. So if you wanted to say remortgage, you would need to go to about three different pieces of the system that didn't talk to each other until end of day. If you wanted to net, say, your credit card bill with your ISA, it's possible in some European countries, in the old system, that could take a week because you need to make each movement, wait for end of day, reconcile that piece, move to the next one. And that was okay because that was the best technology we had at the time. But if you think about these systems that are extremely siloed and monolithic, so it's not like, oh, the world is moving, we'll get a horizontal view. We can't. They're built as monoliths and they're built to hold information in. So imagine a wrapper and a padlock. And at the end of the day, it spits out the right answer. But if you want intraday liquidity updates, if you want your transactions to net in real time, you don't just chuck an API wrapper around it. It's not designed to surface information that way. So even if you did put a wrapper, the data inside does not comply with any messaging standards. It can't do the thing. And it can't do the thing because the thing wasn't even possible. I think this is a really good point, Lida, is that back in that day, compute could do a certain amount. We could store a certain amount. And we had a certain amount of memory. So we narrowed down the problem to very specific things, right? And 30 years later, computers massively got cheaper, got massively more powerful, more memory. And the pure bankers think, well, we're just doing banking still, right? But now we can do banking totally differently with this new capability, right? That's what we believe. We believe that we have the technology and the know-how to make banking 10 times better by deploying technology differently. Can I just ask a quick question here? And it pertains to the future. Did the systems reflect the business or did the business reflect the systems? Because what you're describing is silos, which I'm immediately seeing as sort of like, well, these are the different bank divisions. A bit of both. A bit of both. So if you think about it, banking as we know it is 150 years old. I made someone very upset on a panel recently <laughs> when I was saying that central banks can change their purpose. When they started, they were there to help us fund wars, right? Let's, yeah, let's think back uh, about 300 years. It all looks very different. But if we think about banking in the last 150 years, there was a period of great boom before the technology arrived. So you had to wrap humans around the function. 
And then as technology came, it was more analog than we think about it now. So it was all about enhancing effort. So you would replace some of the humans with the technology, would replace some of the controls. And then you got to the point where you had this technology that had cost you so bloody much that it was easier to work around it than it was to replace it. I think that's absolutely normal. And I'm coming from a place of great sympathy for the bankers. I don't think there's a fail here. It's just a moment of great change upon us. No, it's interesting. I guess what you have is a bunch of new kind of core banking vendors coming in. They see the opportunity. I guess if I was Anthony Jenkins, you know, what is that purpose? What is that thing which is like, is it tying the front end with the back end? So my career, I've spent the entire career at the front end actually trying to create better customer experiences. But, you know, we would always hit the core the back end as you describe it and there'd be compromise and i remember working on one project where it was for a bank in taiwan i think or korea where they couldn't get people through a process and the reason they couldn't get people through a process was one of the questions that the core demanded is what's your english name and they were like well why are you asking that question and they'd look at me and they'd say well why is it failing and i'd go well does everybody have an English name? Statistically, 95% of people don't have an English name. So I so said, I'm just guessing, like, call me. So I'm, I'm laughing here because we did a robotics process automation piece of work in a bank I worked in. You'll be able to work it out very quickly, which bank it was. And we did the RPA implementation, pure efficiency play, and we did it in account opening and maintenance, which had been highly manual up until then. Getting it approved came with all the foibles of a big bank doing something new. It was one of those, like, you prepare for 100 things to go wrong and 100 different things go wrong. And I walk in to my office and my team are huddled around a whiteboard and they're just writing names down. I'm a big fan of random nonsense. Like I had a team once that did regression testing on packets of M&Ms to see if there's any pattern in the appearance of browns. Apparently there isn't. And I like the silliness. I think it's very helpful, particularly when people have very frustrating days, right? So I'm thinking that being silly is fine. But the conversation is getting quite heated. So I go over and it's like, what are you doing? It turned out that the robots needed names because we couldn't credentials. <laughs> <laughs> because oh, the wow. project was only going so far and then it started interfacing with mainframes and with the core and the way it had been set up was that all account maintenance the timestamp for it was not just when it was done <laughs> and where it was the human and to change that requirement input was more than we had budget for so it was just easier for each node to have a name. So my team were sitting there acting godparents. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up with names for bots. Yeah. <laughs> How brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So I totally believe the thing with the English name. Going back to the question, you know, what is it that is being solved by the platform? As I say, what's 10x in their heads as the future? So the problem we're solving is that heart-wrenching moment you have inside a bank when you realize that you have to cut down your ambition to the limitations of your technology. This space has started heating up in the last few years. We firmly believe that we have both the technology and the know-how to not be limited by that anymore. What I find interesting, and this is not a conversation I've had with Anthony, actually, it would be funny if he picks up the phone on the back of this going, we should talk about that. 
<laughs> what I believe is that we are moving towards a world where what we are doing at 10X is an absolutely essential hygiene factor for banks that want to truly service their communities to really uplift what they offer to their customers, to colleagues, to their shareholders, but also to the communities they serve. Being able to have a flexible, scalable, adaptable infrastructure that deals with the world of hyper-connected personalization as we know it, that's not the end of the journey. So we are talking about making banking 10x better by lifting away and removing the obstacles of the past, but also enabling our customers to do all the things that they couldn't do on their legacy infrastructure. And for me, it's about that realization that the journey actually begins when you have the right tools and the imagination that your teams inside a bank will bring to what you can do when you're no longer held back by the rickety mainframes of your past, then that's when it becomes extremely interesting. And to tie back to what you guys were saying earlier, which I totally agree with, we've come to a point of maturity in this space of, of not looking for the quick and dirty wins, of knowing that actually if we want to reap the benefits of a truly digital economy, we have to be turtles all the way down. Yeah, it's really interesting and you know i've come at it from a very different way so i've spent my career as i say dealing with the front end yeah and i did a bit of research which was kind of fascinating where i detected there were differences between how men and women look at money mass generalization but there seemed to be differences and i looked at the app in my hand from my bank and i was like well that doesn't reflect any kind of difference at all you know i can't see anything which is aware of me and, you know, my wife or my daughter's having a kind of different view of money. Now, I won't get into the ins and outs of the journey I then went on that. But what I came back to was actually banking at the front end is very static. And that does not feel like it's kind of very modern, to be honest with you. And then I would say there are several pieces of the puzzle that feed into that. One is, do you have the imagination and a lot of traditional banks don't, to figure out what would be genuinely value additive if you weren't held back by your technology. If you have that imagination, do you have the technology to underpin it? So for a long time, the first question was moot because yeah. the technology underneath was static, not real time, you couldn't do anything. But as you're starting to move, it's one of the things I say to my non-technical friends. It's like, you know how your bank has shitty infrastructure? You can't do the same things on the app as you can do on the desktop, right? Right. Why do you think that's okay? Because that's how it is. But those jarring moments that we've become used to as customers mean that we haven't even questioned ourselves what is possible. And I must admit that most of the neobanks that have come into this from a very user journey, user experience perspective, haven't actually reimagined finance radically, right? Yes. But what I'm finding interesting is what will you do once the technology is there for you. And I'm totally okay and totally open to some of the discoveries being accidental. So I remember I worked with a team years ago. They had worked on a feature for RBS NatWest, actually. And I do not remember what the feature was called, but the whole point was that if you lose your card, there was a thing on the app that allowed you to freeze the card and get a one-time code to get cash out. And that was about 10 years ago. So it was pretty new at the time. Yeah, I remember it. The interesting fact there was that rather than stopping after release, this team was looking at the usage statistics after it went live. 
And they found that it was used extremely heavily by young women in the north of England over the weekend. The first assumption was they get drunk, they lose their phones. But rather than assuming and stopping, which is what your average banker usually does, they sent a research team to speak to some users and they found that the girls were using them as a budgeting tool. They were going out for the night. It was a way of not taking a bag and wallet and of not spending more than they had decided when they were fully sober sitting at home. And to me, that's the most telling thing, right? Once you have the technology that allows you to see that data, what you do on top of it is not going to be an answer that your core banking gives you. The usage will drive the design. And if you're willing to have those conversations, the customers will tell you how to make more money from them. I completely agree. I mean, again, you know, one of the things I think customers find odd is that they're not really sold to through digital channels. You talk to anybody, I don't know, there's another bank, quite famous bank, and their customers are all confused as to why this bank refuses to talk to them about products and services that they could kind of take on. You go, well, it is kind of crazy. And it's just because the way they've designed the mobile apps and the desktop is not to create a relationship, it's to serve a transactional process. Can I pick up on that? Because you asked earlier if we put systems around structures or structures around systems. And what you touch on is where we're going to stumble, even if we have the best technologies. The transactional relationship and whether we started there or ended up there, it almost doesn't matter because it's here and no amount of digital riches will undo it. I have a lot of fun talking to my bank because I'm, like most people, multi-banked and I do have a high street bank as well as every single one of the challengers. My high street bank is trying to sell me a mortgage, not a remortgage, a first-time mortgage, about twice a year, even though my mortgage is paid out of that account. I also know they have the capability to pull that data out. What they don't have, to your point, David, is the non-transactional mindset. They don't care to use it. It is interesting. I sort of feel, for me, in my profession, which is kind of the customer experience end of financial services, I feel we're about to go into something enormous, basically, because the technology can finally deliver stuff. But to your point is what's missing is the imagination, the insight, ideas that will kind of drive this going forward. I'm feeling so positive. I've just done, it's a sort of fairly low level piece of benchmarking on bank social media output. And what you see is some banks can manage three posts on Facebook every month. And I'm like, if they can manage three posts on Facebook... How the hell are they going to generate content to kind of meet things like hyper-personalization? I mean, therein is the discussion that they need to have. But at the moment, they're still going, oh, let's change our core banking system. But it's a journey, right? It's a journey. So, So I'm laughing because I remember working in a bank many years ago, and I was about to go to Cybos, and the communications team came up to me wanting me to submit tweets for pre-approval. So... I think there is a massive adjustment of the ways you used to do things being completely unsuitable for the time and place and adjusting. But the point you're making, I think, is both very valid and also inevitable. So you can't hope for a chance of getting it right unless you change your core banking system. So it's actually not incorrect to be thinking about that. But I also think it's totally okay that you're going to be wide off the mark if you keep trying, right? Do you remember when we used to throw sheep at each other on Facebook. We had aquariums. It was a stepping stone. Can you imagine today people giving each other fish? 
But in the moment in time, it drove a particular type of engagement and it was fine for what it did. Now, do I think that there is a throwing fish equivalent going on now? A little bit. So I think that what the challengers did with the user journeys was the equivalent of that in the sense that we all got super excited by how slick the UX was. I remember when I was waiting for my Monzo card, watching that little card running up the hill towards me was like, something I actually actively went into the app to check where my card is. But it wasn't too dissimilar to throwing sheep at each other or giving each other fish on Facebook. It was a stepping stone in my own digital maturity as a consumer. But once I became accustomed to a certain baseline of clean, intuitive UX and some of the features, the ball game changed. And then it became about the way data is parsed, staying out of my way, because I don't actually want high touch banking. I want you to get out of my way. To your point, you're absolutely right that we haven't seen that amazing thing that our digital era should gift us with. But unless we fix our core, we don't stand a chance of being able to deliver it. And it's a journey of imagination. Fantastic chatting. As I say, we could have gone on and on. There's so much more I'd like to know and understand, but perhaps we could have a follow-up podcast at some point. So thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Dan Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.